BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Welcome to Newsweek Radio. I'm Jesse Edwards, and today we've got a special guest for you that you're not going to want to miss. It's Professor Michio Kaku, theoretical physicist and best-selling author. You've seen him on TV. You've heard him on the radio. And today we're going to be talking about artificial intelligence, chat GPT, fission versus fusion, UFOs, and even figure skating. Yeah, you're not going to want to miss this. A little side note, I used to be Professor Michio Kaku's radio show producer about, oh, 10, 15 years ago. It was called Science Fantastic, and it was syndicated all over the country, and I had a really good time working with him, and it was fantastic catching up with him in this interview. Professor Kaku, thank you so much for joining us on Newsweek Radio. Well, glad to be on. You kind of have this really unique ability as someone in the scientific community to boil down these advanced concepts so, you know, regular everyday people like myself can kind of understand them. Why does it seem like one study says, you know, coffee's good for you one day, a few weeks later it's bad for you? The CDC says vaccinated people don't need to wear masks. They reverse that idea a few months later. Agent Orange was completely healthy until it wasn't. It's kind of easy to see how people might start to mistrust the information they're being given. So what can the scientific community do? What can they be doing better to communicate solutions to these big problems we have, like climate change or hunger, or nuclear war? Well, it's human nature to want a yes or no answer. Is it good for you or not? Come on, tell me the truth. Coffee, is it good for you or not? But you see, science is not like that. The universe does not give you simply a yes or a no answer. Take a look at um, the COVID epidemic. When it first surfaced, Many scientists said that you don't need a mask. You just have to be six feet away from other people. Boy, were we wrong. Now we realize that the virus can spread 30 feet. You sneeze and aerosols will go 30 feet in all directions. And of course, a mask is not perfect, but a mask will help. So what's the problem? The problem is that we want a yes or no answer for everything. When the real answer is maybe under certain circumstances. You have to qualify things. So we now qualify the, the coronavirus, realizing that yes, it'll spread up to 30 feet if you sneeze. Yes, you do need a mask, but it's not foolproof either. There's no guarantee in this process. And so that's the, that's the problem. Human nature demands a yes or no answer. Science says maybe Let's quantify it, and then we can talk from there. How do you bring people to the table, though, that just see everything that they don't agree with as fake news? Well, we have to tell them that uh, there are shades of truth, that truth is not simply one-dimensional. You have to look at circumstances. You have to look at the context. And, of course, people say, yeah, 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 come on. I, I, give me a break. Just give me a yes or no answer. Sometimes there is or there is no yes or no answer. And that's why science seems to change. People say, is coffee good for you? Why do scientists keep changing? Because data comes in. 
the more data we have, the finer we can project into the future. And that's just the way reality is. So the problem is not the data. The problem is not the technology. The problem is us. We have to teach people to understand that there are circumstances which can alter the truth one way or the other. And that's why it's multidimensional. You speak a lot about the concept of a perfect capitalism, as you call it, or the intersection of the data and technology is soon going to provide consumers with a perfect knowledge of supply and demand. Uh, with this rise of an artificial intelligence with programs like uh, ChatGPT, uh, we appear to be getting closer to that reality, but um, is it safe or are we going to be facing another HAL 9000? Well, why is it that Amazon is one of the biggest corporations on the planet? Well, it's very simple, because when you buy something, you assume that supply and demand are in reality, that, that uh, you have the best price for the goods that you buy. But that, of course, is not true. You have imperfect knowledge, imperfect understanding of the cost and the utility of anything you buy. So how come Amazon is one of the biggest corporations on the planet Earth? Because it reduced the uncertainty. Because you now know what you're getting. And that's what the computer revolution has done to the marketplace. It has eliminated, to some degree, uncertainty. So you know what things really cost. Supply and demand become perfect. So what is the goal? The goal of technology in the marketplace is to converge supply and demand. In one sentence, that's why Amazon and that's why all these companies are some of the biggest companies on the planet Earth, because they reduce the uncertainty in the pricing and the availability of a product. So I call that perfect capitalism. Now, we're not talking about the ethics of capitalism. Of course, there are books written about that. We're simply talking about supply and demand. The impact of computer technology on the marketplace has been to eliminate the uncertainty of supply and demand. That's why we have the big fortunes, the multi-billion dollar companies of today riding on the crest of computer technology. Why? Because they are approaching perfect capitalism. Does any part of artificial intelligence scare you? Well, let's compare a robot to an animal. If you were to get our most advanced military robot and put it in the forest, what would it do? Well, it would probably trip over, fall over, and try to scramble its way on, onto its two feet and fail. It'll basically die of lack of power. It has no ability. It's a failure. Now take a cockroach. Put a cockroach in a forest. What does a cockroach do? It looks for food scrambles around, finds a nest, finds a mate, finds safety, and works very fine in a forest. So how advanced is our most advanced military robot? Less than a cockroach. But I firmly believe that eventually we'll have a robot that is as versatile and as intelligent as a mouse. And as the decades go, maybe as intelligent as a rat or a rabbit. Further down the line, maybe we'll finally get a robot as intelligent as a cat or a mouse or a dog. And finally, when we get to maybe the end of the century, who knows when, I think we'll have a robot probably as smart as a monkey. 
Now, at that point, they are potentially dangerous because monkeys know they are not human. Monkeys know that they have their own goals, their own supply and demands. They know they are not human. Now, when you talk to a dog, you see, dogs are confused. Dogs think that we are a dog. <laughs> We're the top dog. They are the underdog. Dogs are confused about that. Monkeys are not confused at all. So therefore, they are potentially dangerous because they have self-awareness. They understand who they are. They understand what humans are. And they understand that they are not humans. And they have their own society independent of humanity. So I think, though I don't know for sure, of course, I think that maybe in 100 years, we will have to deal with robots that are self-aware, that know that they are robots, that can define their own goals. But today's robots cannot. Robots today are a very sophisticated adding machine. They add millions of times faster than us, giving us the impression that they are thinking. But no, they're not thinking at all. They're not self-aware, okay? And as a consequence, I don't think the robots are going to take over anytime soon. Now, of course, they could be dangerous because they could be programmed to kill. I'm not saying that robots are harmless. No, but in terms of robots taking over, they first have to understand who they are and who humans are, and they have to even want to take over. Robots do not want to take over unless somebody programs them to take over. Why should you want to take over? I mean, it's, it's a waste of time taking over human society. So someone has to program a robot to want to take over human society and become masters of, of the human race. And so I think that we confuse that, that robots today do not have goals on that nature. Robots today do not have self-awareness. Robots today do not even know that they are robots. You go to a robot and you slap it on its back and say, great, great guns. You did that chess game really great. And what does the robot do? Nothing. Nothing. It doesn't understand that it won a chess game because it wasn't programmed to understand that it won a chess game. It was just programmed to win. So is that a lot of sensationalism that we're seeing in the news today where people are talking about self-aware robots that they're having communications with and worried that it's going to take over the journalism field. I heard some statistic that 90% of journalists are going to be out of a job because of this chat GPT robot. So is that is it fundamentally just basically not true? Are we worrying a little bit too much about this today? Well, robots, of course, are getting more proficient at mimicking human behaviors, but they are repetitive human behaviors, human behaviors that were programmed, pre-programmed ahead of time. But in terms of originality, in terms of coming out with new forms of communication, in terms of uh, self-awareness, uh, that's where robots are quite deficient. Now, of course, robots are getting smarter every day. Okay, we have Moore's Law. Computer power doubles every 18 months, even though it's slowing down now. Robots do get smarter. But again, robots are simply adding machines. They add very fast, giving the illusion that they are thinking, but they're not thinking at all. For example, take a look at a chatbot. You can write a, a program for a chatbot with maybe a few hundred vocabulary words. I repeat, just a few hundred vocabulary words, and you can create a chat chatbot that sounds like a teenager. The slang, 
the the figures of speech are all codified in a robot that speaks like a teenager. So you think you're talking to a real human when actually you're talking to a robot that knows the lingo and gives you the impression that it's thinking when it's not really thinking at all. With everything that you've learned about human beings and the problems that we collectively face over the years, do you think we're capable of saving the planet from ourselves or are we past the point of no return? And would we even recognize the point of no return if we crossed it? First of all, there are many points of no return, not just one, but many of them. And of course, as time goes by, we're crossing various uh, points of no return. So that, of course, is something of concern. However, I tend to be an optimist. To quote General Dwight D. Eisenhower, uh, pessimists never win wars. Only optimists win wars. Now, I'm not saying that we can be blindly Pollyannish to assume that it'll take care of itself. No, I think that as Winston Churchill said, in a democracy, people try every possible conceivable solution until finally they choose the right one. So I think as time goes by, the atmosphere will worsen, weathers will get uh, more and more unstable, people will get more and more frightened, and people will then make the right decisions. It's still early in the game, and so people say, well, gee, you know, look at, look at outside today. It's cold outside. People believe in global warming. That's a bunch of nonsense. People still say that. But it'll get to the point where it is indisputable that the earth is warming up. At that point in democracy, at the last minute, hopefully, as Winston Churchill has said, hopefully we'll make the right choice. But won't it be too late at that point? Well, that's why I'm saying that there's more than one point of no return. Okay, yeah. And so it depends on which point of no return that you are uh, basically crossing. I think fusion power is going to be one of the game changers that in 10, 20 years will have the first commercially available fusion plants. Fusion power is one of the solutions to global warming. Not the only one, of course, but seawater. Seawater is the basic ingredient. Fusion plants do not create carbon dioxide waste. They don't create any waste at all, except helium gas, which is, of course, commercially valuable. And so we're talking about a no-brainer, that once we have fusion power off the ground, uh, by mid-century, they could be our main one of our main sources of energy, in which case we could wean ourselves away from fossil fuels. Okay, so I mean, th that's, that's a hopeful thing. What do we do with all the nuclear waste that we have now, Fukushima? Uh, are we going to live to a point where we will actually survive and be able to use fusion? Well, first of all, what is the difference between fission and fusion? Fusion power is the source of energy of the universe. The universe runs on fusion power, not fission power. In fact, as far as we can tell, fission plants do not exist in the universe except on the planet Earth. The planet Earth is the only place in the entire universe that we know of where we have fission power, the power of uranium, because most of the universe runs on fusion power. And so I think that fission power will basically run its course, that the promise of fission power was never really realized, that we oversold fission power technology. And I think when fusion power comes in, it'll be a game changer. It'll be one of the 
uh, technologies that'll save us from global warming. What do we do with all the spent uranium? Every time we try to get a nuclear waste dump created, eventually it's shut down because we realize that they're unstable. Right. A nuclear waste plant has to be stable for tens of millions of years. You realize that nations only exist for maybe a few decades or a few centuries. Nations, which have the legal authority to, to sequester nuclear waste, nations don't exist that long. But nuclear waste is, is devastatingly dangerous for tens of millions of years. But of course, I think fission power will run its course. When fusion power comes in, people will realize that that's the way to go with no nuclear waste to speak of, no meltdowns, using seawater as the basic source of energy without creating any carbon dioxide. I think it will be obvious at that point that no nuclear waste no more nuclear waste will be created because fission plants will have run their course. What do you think is the best solution for Fukushima specifically? I think there are no good solutions. Uh, when Fukushima first happened, I told ABC television that they ought to do what the Russians did uh, during the Chernobyl disaster. Uh, the Russians faced the same problem, except here we had a raging fire that was out of control a nuclear fission plant that lost maybe 70% of its uranium vaporized, aerosolized in the air. What do you do with it? What they did was they called the Red Air Force. The Red Air Force came in with helicopters, helicopters shielded with, with anti-radiation shielding, dumping borated water on the reactor, quenching the nuclear chain reaction, and then sandbagging it putting sandbags of concrete and sand, burying the Chernobyl reactor in, in a mountain of sand and borated water. I suggested they do that for Chernobyl. And they thought that, well, the Russians did it. But no, the Japanese have a solution. Well, <laughs> what is the solution? Slow death. You realize that the circuit of water, which circulates in a nuclear power plant, is in a loop. But the loop is not closed at Fukushima. The loop is open, which means that all the water you dump in eventually comes out the other end. And it's forever. Unless you close the loop, you forever create radioactive water. And that's what's happening at Fukushima. They did not close the loop, which you could have done if you sandbagged the whole thing, but they didn't. So the loop is open. They keep on dumping water on it to keep the reactor safe, but that creates irradiated water, which simply piles up. So there is no good solution because it's limitless. The amount of water you can generate that's radioactive from, from Fukushima is limitless because the loop is not closed. And they don't plan on closing it, apparently. What's it going to look like in 100 years from now? The Pacific Ocean. Well, let's hope that they can eventually get into the reactor with robots and eventually close the loop. It's so radioactive that no human can go in there for more than a few minutes to a few hours. And they cannot create machinery to close the loop. Eventually, they're going to be using robots of some sort to uh, clear the debris of the reactor, close the loop. And at that point, no more radioactive water will be created. But until then... It's slow death, realizing that water is keeping on uh, dribbling out of the reactor because the loop is not closed. Mm, that's terrible. 
All right, one more question we can dive into a little bit here that everybody likes to get your take on, and that's, of course, the UFO phenomenon. So, like, non-scientifically, if I was just to ask you as a normal guy, your gut instinct, what you think it actually is, are we talking aliens? Are we talking interdimensional beings? Uh, humans visiting us from the future? Maybe a combination of all three? What do you think it really is? Well, first of all, I think that there's been a game changer. In the old days, the burden of proof was on the true believers to prove that what they saw last night was a flying saucer of some sort. Now the burden of proof has shifted. Now it's the military. The military that has to prove that these aren't extraterrestrial objects. So there's been a sea change. And why? Because, you see, science is not based on single observations by a single technology. Science is based on multiple modes using uh, multiple uh, sources of data. In other words, not just one person saying, I saw something last night, but many people simultaneously locking onto something, not just with eyesight, but with cameras, with infrared sensors, with ultraviolet sensors. So multiple sightings by multiple modes, that's the gold standard. Now we didn't have that until recently. Now we have hours of, of Navy footage giving us the raw data by which we can quantify many of these characteristics. We now know, for example, that if you can believe these videotapes, these objects can fly between Mach 5 and Mach 20. That is 20 times the speed of sound between Mach 5 and Mach 20. They zigzag, creating G-forces of several hundred Gs. Bones would break, bodies would be crushed in that situation. Not only that, they can dive bomb. They can dive bomb several uh, hundred, uh, what was it, several miles just within a few seconds and then go into the ocean. They can apparently move in the oceans as well as fly in the air. So we now have the quantification of some of the data. And then the next question, well, okay, so what? What does it mean if an object can fly between Mach 5 and Mach 20, can dive bomb uh, tens of thousands of feet within a few seconds, can zigzag creating G-forces of several hundred Gs, what does that mean? Well, we cannot make a definitive conclusion. We can have two partial conclusions. One conclusion is, of course, they are extraterrestrial. That is something that cannot be ruled out. And it's something that we have to take seriously. And I'll address that point in a minute. The other possibility, however, is that they are optical illusions. If you have an object whizzing in front of your eyes, for example, very slowly, and you think this object is several miles away, then you calculate that this object is moving at hundreds of miles per hour. So in other words, perspective. You have to know the distance between the camera and the object you are looking at. The distance. That is very hard to attain with these videotapes. With these videotapes, we don't know how far away these objects are. So in other words, it's still possible that they could be parallax optical illusions. Now let's take each conclusion to its logical end. Let's say they are extraterrestrial then what does it mean for a physicist? Well, you talk to a physicist about these objects and most physicists would roll their eyes, 
look up in the sky, raise their hands, and say, impossible. Because of the fact it takes centuries, centuries for a rocket to go from one planet to another planet in another solar system. Impractical. But you see, there's a mistake there. The mistake there is to assume that the aliens are a few hundred years more advanced than us. That's the mistake that a majority of scientists make. That's why they say, bah, humbug, no way these objects can reach us. They're too far away. But you see, let's now assume that they are millions of years more advanced than us. And of course, the universe is 13, over 13 billion years old. What is a few million years compared to the age of the universe? Then we're talking about a new technology. We're talking about type one, type two, or type three civilizations. A type one civilization has harnessed planetary power. They control the weather. They control volcanoes. They control the oceans. That's type one. Sort of like Buck Rogers. Then there's type two. Type two controls the output of the sun. They control stars. That's the energy source. Like Star Trek. Star Trek would be a typical type two civilization. They've colonized a fraction of the area of the galaxy, but not much more than that. Then there's type three. Type three is galactic. They've harnessed the energy of an entire galaxy, like Star Wars. Star Wars would be a type three civilization. Now, if you want to build a flying saucer that can go between stars, you probably have to be type three. Now, why is that? Because the energy scale that you need is the energy scale called the Planck energy. The Planck energy is the energy of the Big Bang. It's the energy of a black hole. It's the energy at which space and time become unstable. If you have, for example, an ice cube and you put it in a microwave oven, you turn it on, well, the ice eventually melts, turns into water. The water eventually vaporizes, turns into steam. The steam eventually decomposes and ionizes into quarks and subatomic particles. Now let's boil space. If I take a microwave oven and heat it up to the Planck energy, which is a quadrillion times the energy of the Large Hadron Collider outside Geneva, Switzerland, eventually space becomes unstable. It begins to boil. Holes, bubbles begin to form inside your microwave oven. These bubbles are wormholes. They are gateways to another universe. Of course, we've never done that, but that's what the mathematics implies, that eventually you boil space to the point that bubbles form. These bubbles are gateways to another universe. That's where the aliens of type three may come from. In other words, to travel across the stars, you need a shortcut. And that shortcut would be wormholes that are generated by the Planck energy. Now you've seen these wormholes before. Think of Alice in Wonderland, the looking glass. The looking glass was created by a mathematician, Charles Dodson, otherwise known as Lewis Carroll, the author of Alice in Wonderland. The looking glass is the wormhole. It is a gateway connecting two universes together, such that when Alice put her hand through the looking glass, she entered another universe. 
That is the way that a type 3 civilization could go between stars without having to wait tens of thousands of years for a chemical rocket to reach nearby stars. By the way, a Saturn rocket would take 70,000 years to reach the nearest stars. 70,000 years. That's why many scientists think that the aliens are not going to come anytime soon. The stars are simply too far away. But that assumes the aliens are a few hundred years from us. If they are a million years from us, the Planck energy is conceivable, in which case they simply boil space and hop right through. It's quite a mental picture to digest there. Thank you for that. Uh, one more thing I did want to ask you about. When you were a kid, is it true that you built a particle accelerator in your garage? Yeah, that's right. When I was eight years old, something happened which changed my life completely. Uh, the newspaper said that a scientist had just died. And on his desk, they put a picture of his desk with a book that was unfinished. And the commentary was that the greatest scientists of our time could not finish that book. Well, I was fascinated. I wanted to know about who was that scientist? Why couldn't he finish that book? Well, that scientist was Albert Einstein. And that book was the unified field theory, the theory of everything. So when I was in high school, I wanted to be part of this great chase to find the theory of everything. So I built a particle accelerator, a 2.3 million electron volt Betatron electron accelerator in my mom's garage. It consumed six kilowatts of power, created a magnetic field 20,000 times the Earth's magnetic field. And yeah, I built a particle accelerator in my mom's garage. And my poor mom, of course, was wondering, what is her son doing building these things in the garage? Well, I would recommend that all the young people out there who are also fascinated by science, that they too meet the challenge of being at the cutting edge of science. What does Michio Kaku do for fun when you're trying to relax, not doing science? Well, believe it or not, I like to go figure skating. Seriously? Uh, yeah. In fact, if you get on the web and you simply Google me figure skating, you can see me figure skating at Rockefeller Center. That's fascinating. I had no idea. I, I'm willing to bet a lot of people don't know about that. How did you get into figure skating? Well, I took my kids to the ice rink one day and I saw them fall down. And I said to myself, I'm paying good money to watch my kids fall down. <laughs> and I said to myself, I can learn it myself and teach my kids for free. Well, it was harder than I thought. Learning how to jump and spin was harder than I thought. But after about a year, uh, anybody can be proficient and learn how to do elementary jumps and spins. Wow. And so, so I spent on the ice just demonstrating the Newtonian laws. Because on the ice, it's basically you and Newton's laws of motion. Well, I, I guess on that note, we'll, we'll call it a wrap. But I just wanted to thank you for everything you've done over the years to explain these outrageous concepts to you know, more simple-minded folks like myself, uh, even going back to the days of Art Bell and everything, it, it, you've just always been such a wealth of information and such a, a pleasure to listen to and talk to over the years. So I just want to thank you for that and wish you the best going forward. Okay, well, thank you. Big thanks to Professor Kaku for joining us on Newsweek Radio. If you like what you heard, please go over to Apple Podcasts and give us a five-star review and tell us what you like about it. We're going to be bringing you some more shows in the near future. We're about a once a month kind of frequency thing now, but we're going to double that to twice a month. Yes. Yes, the children cheer for Newsweek Radio. 
Until next time, I'm Jesse Edwards. After being a staple in American media for over 90 years, Newsweek now brings you an exceptional lineup of podcasts. The debate. They'll recognize how these policies aren't working. They'll feel the pain and they'll change their behavior. The Josh Hammer Show. Restore the principles and the political paradigms of the American founding. The Crystal Knight Show. Just because officers are black doesn't mean that the policing system still isn't inherently racist. Fast women. Chevy's actually doing really well and Honda's really not. Wow. It's like the opposite of most people's perception of them. It is. The parting shot. Every year when the new nominations are announced, I get this excited, nostalgic feeling, and it brings out that little kid in me who just loved movies. The Royal Report. Harry and Meghan's head of comms has announced they now move forward to their kind of future outside the royal family. Newsweek Podcasts. New episodes drop weekly. Download or listen now at Newsweek.com or wherever you get your podcasts.